This podcast is marketing material for a South Africa investment professional only. Hello and welcome to the October edition of the Schroeder's Global Market Perspective, a podcast designed to help South African investors navigate global markets. This is Gavin Ralston in London and joining me today is Alex Tedder, one of Schroeder's most senior equity portfolio managers. Alex is head of global and international equities and runs a couple of the global equity funds which are approved for distribution in South Africa. Alex, from a more personal perspective, you've travelled to South Africa a number of times. What's your view of the local investment industry relative to the others that you've come into contact with? Yeah, um, I'm always amazed, Gavin, by how sophisticated the local investment industry is in South Africa. It's uh, it's always a surprise. I mean, South Africa is still classified as an emerging market. Um, some would say for obvious reasons. But um, every time I go there, I'm always struck by how unemerging, how developed, in other words, many aspects of the economy are. Uh, and financial services would definitely be one of those. Well, we shall try to bear that in mind during our conversation today. Yeah. So the background to... This conversation is a continuing stream of fairly dismal economic news. Most notably, we had a recent ISM survey for the US, uh, which was unambiguously bad uh, for both manufacturing and non-manufacturing. We've also had September employment data, which showed that the economy is expanding, but at a slower pace than earlier in 2019. It also showed that wage inflation is beginning to ease. So there are clear signs, especially if you look at the Uh, economic surprise indices that uh, U.S. growth is weakening. And that comes on top of a situation where Chinese growth is well off its best and Germany is teetering on the brink of recession. The overall degree of pessimism is evident in 10-year bond yields, which fell back to about 1.5% in the U.S. at the start of the month, but at the time we're speaking has recovered recovered to 1.7%. In the face of this data, equity markets have perhaps been more resilient than you might think for two reasons. One is expectations of the Fed cutting rates again have risen, and that's the story of 2019. And there also seem to have been positive moves in the trade negotiations between the US and China, although that's a story that changes on a daily basis. But Alex, turning to you... um, GDP growth is slowing in the US. There seems to be no doubt about that. What's happening to earnings growth? Mm. Earnings growth is slowing too, Gavin. Um, It's interesting that uh, estimates for the third quarter, and we're about to come into the third quarter reporting season, it's about to kick off. Estimates have come down sharply in the last uh, few weeks, um, uh, partly on the back of trade wars, but partly on the back of... Wall Street analysts suddenly beginning to realize that uh, the air is pretty thin. There, there isn't a lot of scope for companies to cut costs materially at this point. Uh, in fact, in many cases, they're experiencing higher costs and margins are at record highs. Uh, and so where we are now is that consensus uh, third quarter earnings for the S&P are now negative year on year, having been strongly positive only a few uh, weeks ago. And and do you think there's a risk that the actual earnings announcements this quarter will disappoint what are already negative expectations? Yeah, here's the thing. Uh, I think there's a fairly good chance, given how far expectations have fallen for the third quarter, and as I said, they are now negative for the S&P uh, overall, 
I think it's a fairly good chance, actually, that earnings will be will turn out to be slightly better than expected. That was the case, actually, last quarter. And I think it'll be the case again this quarter, simply because the domestic economy is actually still in pretty good shape. Yes, it's slowing. and There are certainly signs of pressure. But the momentum in the domestic economy is still there, whilst the export-facing economy obviously is facing some serious challenges. But I think as long as the domestic economy remains robust, uh, earnings estimates will hold up reasonably well, certainly for this quarter and possibly for the fourth quarter as well. And what about 2020? I mean, our economists are of the view that the US will avoid a recession, so mm. that would support the, the domestic consumption argument you just made. Yeah, I, I think it's touch and go as to whether the US avoids a recession. I'm not sure it does, simply because... Um, Things are definitely becoming tougher, even in in terms of domestically facing companies. And I'm thinking with unemployment at record lows, uh, it is getting tough to hire workers at the right right wage levels. We haven't seen wage inflation pick up materially, but I think we're going to start to see that. And input costs generally are rising. We can definitely see that in certain sectors like airlines, for example, where Delta Airlines this week warned of higher costs across the board, wage costs, uh, other input costs, fuel, obviously, but other costs as well. And we've heard it from several manufacturing companies as well um, that uh, input costs are rising now quite steeply. So I think there's a pretty fair chance that um, this um, will become uh, more of a compounding effect over the next uh, few weeks and months. And as we go into 2020, we're going to start to see margin pressure, a slowing economy, and earnings downgrades. We'll come back to some um, bottom-up ideas uh, as you are um, a stock picker in the way you run money. Mm. But just one other big-picture question. Mm. Uh, There was a sharp recovery in value stocks globally in September. It was quite short-lived but has been sustained. Mm. Is this, in your view, a blip or is this the turning point that value investors have been calling for for some time? It's a really interesting question, Gavin. Um, it's probably the question for certainly for equity investors at this point. The spread between growth and value is the widest it's been for a very long time. Uh, certainly in the US, the spread is the widest it's been uh, since the 90s. And um, that obviously poses questions as to when we get mean reversion. And I think it's a fair to say, I can say that with some degree of certainty, that things will remain, will mean revert at some point. It's just a question of when. However, my base case is that that doesn't happen yet. And that's simply because in order to get the value space, uh, so stocks classified as value stocks, in order to get those to perform strongly versus other sectors, you need to have an economic tailwind. You need to have signs at least of an upturn before investors will respond to that in aggregate and uh, push the valuations of these stocks above where they are now. And there's no immediate catalyst for that. Quite the opposite, as we've discussed. Things are continuing to slow. So our approach is is bottom-up, and we'll come on to that in a minute, but our approach is always to focus on the ability of companies to deliver, to execute within a reasonable time frame, to deliver growth that's not recognised in our particular case. That leads us to, still today, to quality situations, companies that can execute in a tough economic environment, uh, that forms the core of our portfolio, and that isn't changing yet. 
So, so talk to us about some of those big quality growth names, particularly in the US. And I think of the likes of the big technology stocks that have been driven the market. Not so much this year, because I think the fangs have actually underperformed mm. by 10% since mm. the start of 2019. But do you think uh, that the fundamentals still justify the valuations of some, at least some of those names? I do, Gavin. You're right. The fangs have actually been a surprisingly mm, disappointing group for investors um, over the last 12 months. Um, there's been quite a widespread of return within that. The likes of Netflix have obviously done quite poorly uh, based on fears around competition and cost, whilst companies like Apple have actually done surprisingly well um, and beaten most expectations, uh, certainly during the course of this year. So there is, um, there is a big uh, spread between the individual um, companies and the way they're performing and the way they're executing. Uh, I think that will continue. So as a group, it's difficult to generalize. But what I would say is where we are today, most of the FANGs, most of the big technology companies, in terms of their operating metrics, from a revenue standpoint or from an earnings standpoint, continue to look actually very good. And I'd highlight Facebook and Google in that context, as well as Apple and Microsoft. And, and, and one stock that's of a particular interest to South African investors because of the NASPAS holding is Tencent. Mm. What's your view on it at the moment? Fascinating situation because of the decision to list, a decision by NASPAS to list the Tencent and other internet-related assets in Amsterdam uh, in the new company called Process. I think it's a really positive step. Um, what NASPAS is trying to do is get away from the um, the dominance, if you like, of the Tencent holding in the context of the South African Stock Exchange. So they, I think they made the right decision. Investors, certainly here in Europe and I think in the US too, are sort of trying to figure out whether to invest in process, how to invest in process. My view is though that they will, and uh, that will become a core holding for Tencent, uh, for exposure to Tencent. You've been on record earlier this year talking about the IPO market and being concerned at the valuations that the market was prepared to put on companies that were losing money. We, we've seen in the last month or so the pulling of the WeWork IPO. Is that a game changer or is it a one-off? Um, I don't think it's a game changer. Uh, I think it's not a one-off either. I think what it is is a realisation by investors that ultimately these companies, these new business models do need to make money at some point. We've seen it already with Lyft and Uber and several of other high-profile high IPOs, and WeWork obviously never made it to the market or hasn't so far. It's a realization by investors that some of the multiples that are being suggested or, or, or being uh, uh, trying to be realized at the IPO stage just aren't realistic. And that, I think, is quite healthy because... There have been parallels drawn to 99-2000 in terms of where we are in the technology cycle. I definitely don't see that. This is not 99-2000. And I think the fact that some of these IPOs are failing is actually quite a reassuring sign at this point. And the difference between now and 99-2000 is that the valuations put on the growth stocks are much more uh, justifiable. They are, absolutely. And to go back to your question around growth versus value, Although the spread between growth and value and valuation terms is quite wide, it doesn't seem egregious to us. Certainly not when you consider the uh, return profile that some of the higher growth companies in terms of return on capital and cash flow generation 
that they're able to generate currently. Let's turn to Europe, where the the macro picture looks pretty dreadful. Mm. Um, the the rate of growth in someone like Germany is close to zero. Uh, Germany, in particular, has been caught up in the, um, the backwash from the trade dispute between mm. the U.S. and China. How are the large European companies coping with this very difficult environment? Yes, it's very, very interesting, isn't it? Um, the area, actually, the areas that have been most affected by the trade wars uh, up to now are actually not the US and not China. Um, it's Europe and, to an extent, Japan. And that's because the export sectors in those economies are that much larger compared to the overall economy than they are in the US or China. Germany is a case in point. I mean, the economy, as we know, is an export powerhouse. It's been hugely hit by trade wars and the loss of confidence generally. And uh, the economy is now, as you say, teetering on the edge of a recession. Uh, what we're seeing, though, is a response, by certainly by the better-run companies in Germany, in Europe as a whole, and in Japan, which is a fairly swift move to cut costs, to reposition, to restructure. Uh, companies like Continental in Germany have announced fairly significant restructuring programs that derive directly from some of this change that they've experienced. And that is an ongoing trend that we think will continue. And for that reason, we're actually becoming more interested in some of the unloved areas outside the US uh, that have been pretty poor performers over the last few years, particularly recently, where investors are currently not focused precisely because expectations are now very low. So a lot of self-help going on in Europe rather than waiting for the ECB or the governments to do anything to improve the macro environment? Yeah, uh, definitely. I mean, the ECB is obviously trying to be proactive, but to be it's a little bit pushing on a string. How much more can they do? Fiscal policy may yet kick in, but it's going to be a slow burn. Where I think we will see positive surprise is in the corporate sector, as we've discussed, those companies that are actually restructuring and doing so quite aggressively, because as soon as we get any stabilisation in the global economy, whether that's from China, uh, whether it's from other emerging markets, or whether it's just Europe itself stabilising, we will see quite a lot of operating leverage come through in some of these companies and probably earnings, positive earnings surprises as well. Thinking of uh, unloved markets, um, South Africa is clearly unloved. The mm. macro numbers there have been difficult too. Mm. How do you look on South African stocks from a global perspective? Well... The first thing I'd say is I'd love to be able to invest more in South Africa for the reasons we started by talking about how developed parts of the economy are and appear to be. Uh, and obviously, we'd love to get more exposure to that if we could. We've talked a bit about NASPAS as rather a specific situation, but NASPAS has done the right thing, in my view, and tried to resolve a difficult issue for the South African stock market as a whole. I think the number one issue today is politics, um, as in so many other places. Uh, the political framework, the legal framework to an extent, uh, but the political framework certainly to a much greater degree. Issues need to be resolved. ESCOM needs to be resolved. Um, and other measures need to be taken for investors really to be confident enough, I think, to commit materially to the market. 
And broadening out that question to the emerging markets in general, uh, you were talking about looking for opportunities in areas that have performed less well than the US in mm. particular. Yeah. Are you finding, I mean, you think in terms of the growth gap between market expectations and what uh, we see in terms of growth, are you finding more opportunities in emerging markets now? Yeah, we are. I mean, we always have, we've always had and we'll continue to have a certain amount of emerging market exposure that is high quality with structural growth because it's not just the US that has structural growth. It's companies in China, it's companies in Brazil, it's companies in Indonesia, uh, and it's companies in other parts of the world, uh, in Latin America and in Southeast Asia. Uh, there are always strong structural growth stories uh, outside the US and emerging markets is no exception. At the margin, though, what we are seeing is a little bit of a similar situation to the one we've talked about in terms of Europe and Japan, which is it's not going to take a lot of improvement to generate a lot of earnings growth in some of these markets and sectors. For example, if and when the Chinese economy starts to re-accelerate, which it surely will at some point, there will be a lot of opportunity in some of the less loved areas, for example, in the industrial space. And uh, sort of linked to that is the idea that uh, many developed company, developed market companies uh, are major suppliers to emerging markets. If you just think of the Japan machine tool manufacturers, the automation um, companies in, in particular at this point that have heavy exposure to China, if China recovers, Japanese automaker, uh, automation makers will, will follow and, and will do very well. I want to move on to the the perspective of an investor who cares about ESG. Can you talk about how you run that differently from a standard global equity approach? I can. Um, I think it's an exciting uh, strategy, Gavin, because um, we've long known that quality is an important factor in terms of shareholder return over time. But quality historically has been quite poorly defined, typically based on financial measures. Um, and quality indices or quality factor models have typically focused on return on equity, return on capital, um, uh, those sort of measures when they define quality. For us, quality is a whole lot more than that. It is in today's world about uh, managing your business, not just purely for shareholders, but for stakeholders as a whole, for managing the business ethically, soundly, for managing it from an environmental standpoint, and for managing it with, in terms of good governance and good control. All of these factors we think are important and ultimately, in our view, do translate into higher shareholder returns. And so we've taken it a step further with our uh, sustainable growth strategy, by creating a additional screen on top of the research process that we have, an additional screen, which is a uh, methodology that we call the SQ methodology, Sustainable Quotient Methodology, which is effectively a 20-question uh, template that we submit every company in our research pool to. And we require the majority of those questions to be answered positively for a company to qualify for the sustainable growth strategy. So it adds an extra dimension, an extra layer of due diligence that is specifically tailored to finding those companies that have business models that are sustainable in every sense of the word. So it is a higher quality threshold to get into that portfolio. Most then. definitely. And, and we exclude, we do have upfront 
certain exclusions, for example, in the fossil fuel sector, in the defense sector, in the gambling sector, and in certain parts of the consumer sector where we feel that the business models are not compatible with sustainability as we see it. And that's not an, you're not expressing an ethical view. That's a view on the fact that those business models simply won't lead to good shareholder returns in the long run. Correct. Correct. Yeah, that's the key factor. I mean, the aim of the strategy, as with all our strategies, ultimately is to make money for our investors. But we just happen to believe that investing sustainably is a very good way to do that in today's world. Great. Thank you very much indeed, Alex. We're out of time for this month. Um, and thank you all very much for listening. The value of investments and the income from them may go down as well as up, and investors may not get back the amounts originally invested. Past performance is not a guide to future performance and may not be repeated. Schroeder's Investment Management Limited is an authorized financial services provider. FSP number 48998, registration number 01893220, incorporated in England and Wales. The information is not an offer, solicitation or recommendation. Any funds, services or products mentioned might not be appropriate for all listeners. Please speak to a financial advisor if you are unsure as to the suitability of any investment.